We are in the middle of Perak Bey's Mishnah Hay, and the Mishnah said, we already learned the, the first part of the Mishnah uh, last time we, we were together. Hill Omer al Tifrosh Minatibor. Hill said, don't uh, depart or don't separate yourself from the congregation. Don't believe in yourself until the day you die, meaning don't believe that you've conquered the Eitzahar, you're not going to do any Avera until the day you die. The, the next part of the mission I want to get to, which is, don't judge your friend until you get to his place. This is um, a, a, a phrase which is, is pregnant with meaning. It's full of meaning. Let's understand what this means. First, let's understand to whom is the mission addressing. The mission is addressing uh, to, to, who's the audience that the mission is addressing? Now, while it's true that Pirkei Avos is, is Torah and it's meant for everybody in Kalah Yisrael to read, we've already mentioned that Pirkei Avos was the statements of the leaders of the generation which they used to be able to um, to be able to lead people with. This, these were their mottos. So when Hill was saying, don't judge a person until you get to his place, he's talking to himself and he's talking to people like him, leaders. And the fact of the matter is that people who are in charge of things, unfortunately, listen to a lot of stuff that other people don't have to listen to. And sometimes it comes out to be things that are detrimental to other people and although you're required to listen to it because it's a dintoro or somebody's taking advice and it's not under the rubric of Lashon Hara, but you have to be careful not to judge other people when you hear their stories because not everybody is, is, is made the same. Not everybody's uh, characteristics are the same. So it's a particular statement to rabbis, judges, people who are in charge of organizations to be careful not to judge people until you, until you reach their place. My, um, I, I want, I, I, my wife's uncle was Neuch Weinberg, he was the founder of Asia Torah. And he used to say, in different iterations of the statement, he used to say, you are an extreme, extremist. He is weak-minded. I'm balanced. That's what he would say. That whenever there was an opinion, it's always me. I always think that I'm the, I'm the right one. I'm okay. I'm totally balanced. Everybody else who's a bit to the right of me is an extremist. Whoever's to the left of me is, is weak-minded. That's the way people tend to think. So um, you have to be careful to understand that uh, we get to, uh, um, uh, we, we respond very often strongly to something, but when we reach that person's situation, then we don't respond so strongly anymore. We understand it uh, fully. So before a person forms an opinion about something or somebody, you have to make sure to take into account the person and, uh, and his circumstances. Nobody wants to be held accountable for things that he or she did when he or she was a teenager. We didn't have seichel back in those days. So uh, we don't be held accountable for that. So we shouldn't hold other people into account to, for account for things that they did when they were, were lack seichel. Or under certain circumstances, people do things and, and, um, and, and, and you have to take into account the circumstances. I, I'll share with you something that maybe I shouldn't share with you, but I will anyway. Um, this is despite the fact that we in the Parnas family come from a, a family that was Moser Nefesh Mamish for Shmira Shabbos, my 
great-grandfather came in the early part of the 20th century to America and was very careful to always keep Shabbos, never deviated from Shabbos, encouraged other people to keep Shabbos. On my mother's side, also my grandmother came um, uh, in between World War I and World early. She came after World War I, always kept Shabbos, Baruch Hashem. My grandfather was a, uh, my mother's father was a great Tamachachim. But despite that, you find that um, people were, when they came to America, very often they couldn't find work and they ended up working on Shabbos. And we tend to look back and say that was a great mistake, and it was. I'm not saying it wasn't a mistake. I'm not saying it was the right thing to do that they worked on Shabbos instead of, uh, instead of being Moser Nefesh. But to judge a person is a very difficult thing to do. You have to be careful about that because um, think about it, back in the late 1800s when there was a huge immigration of Jews into America in the 1880s, there, there wasn't enough jobs to go around and a person who wasn't working on Shabbos simply couldn't get employment or his store wouldn't be frequented. And there weren't any welfare organizations around. Um, if a person didn't have enough food, he died. So and he starved and his family did. And people thought that it was literally pekuach nefesh to be able to, uh, to have to work on Shabbos. And, and maybe they were right in that respect. I think the problem that uh, occurred was when they were able to make a living, they didn't stop working on Shabbos. So maybe I shouldn't say that. I don't know. But you have to be careful not to judge people. I always thought that not to judge people, the circumstances that they're in um, were difficult circumstances. And, um, and, and who, 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 are, who, who are us to say that if we wouldn't be in their circumstances, we wouldn't have acted the same way. Uh, Chazal tell us a fascinating story about one of the greatest people who ever lived, Shlomo HaMelech. Shlomo HaMelech was the greatest and the wisest, one of the greatest and the wisest, the wisest man that ever lived. And in his day, Shlomo HaMelech facilitated the building of the Beis HaMikdash that David HaMelech had laid out all the plans for and the groundwork. And Shlomo HaMelech actually built the Beis HaMikdash. Now, Shlomo HaMelech kept the keys to the Beis HaMikdash under his pillow. And he wasn't a lazy individual at all. He would get up early and open up the Beis HaMikdash and the, the uh, Beis HaMikdash was able to function. One day, he kept the keys under his, base, under his pillows. His wife, who was the daughter of Paro, wanted to, for reasons of her own, I don't know why and I can't pretend to know why, to play a trick on him. What she did was she had the ceiling of his bedroom that he slept in painted to look like the sky the stars of the sky that would appear that particular night. And when Shlomo went to sleep uh, and then he woke up, she kept telling him, go back to sleep, it's still, it's still nighttime. And she fooled him, she tricked him into thinking that it was night because uh, he looked out the window, looked at the window and it was painted over and it looked like it was the night sky. Really, it was daytime. So he slept in and he slept so long that they actually missed the morning sacrifices. They couldn't do the, the carbon tamid in the morning and the katoris they couldn't do in the morning. They missed it. And it was, it was, it was terribly embarrassing for Shlomo Melech. It was a terrible th- a sin, but he was, it was a terrible thing, but he was, he was a show gig. He didn't do it on purpose. It was completely an accident. And his own wife tricked him in, in this manner. Now, there was a the fellow who at the time was a very big Tamachachim. His name was Yeruvam Ben Nevat. That was his name. And Yeruvam Ben Nevat came to Shlomo and admonished him for, uh, for sleeping in and causing 
the base of English not, not to be open and causing many people to be lined up outside the base of English not to be able to get in. The Kohanim were not able to get in. The morning sacrifices weren't able to be done. And when he said that, he admonished him. A heavenly voice came out and said that Shlomo did what he did by accident. And you, Yeravim Benavad, are destined to cause many sacrifices not to be given properly on purpose. And indeed, later on, when Shlomo Melech passed away, he left the kingdom over to his son Rechavam. Yeravam rebelled against Rechavam and took 10 of the, uh, of, the, of the Shvatim, the tribes with him, leaving Rechavam only with Yehuda and with Benjamin. And when it came time for Yom Tov, the borders between the two kingdoms were open. But Yeravam was worried. He said, you know, there's halacha that a person has to go, every Jewish male has to go to the Beis HaMikdash three times a year, Pesach and Shavuos and Sukkot. You have to go. And when you go, you have to bring a carbon. And you, you have to go into the Azara, into the courtyard of the Beis HaMikdash. Now there's halacha that no one is allowed to sit down in the courtyard of the Beis HaMikdash except a king who is a descendant of David Melech. So Yeravim said, how's it going to look? I'm going to come up to the base of Mikdash and I'm going to be standing and Rechavam, who is the grandson of David Melech, is going to be sitting and it's going to be very embarrassing for me and people will realize I'm not a true king. It'll just drive it home and it'll be not good. So he closed the borders between Malchus uh, Yisrael and Malchus Yehuda between the two kingdoms, his kingdom and the kingdom of Yehuda, he closed the borders and he forbade people from going across, so not only did they not bring the proper sacrifices but something else happened as well Yeravam I'm going to, I'm just going to mute you if you don't mind because um, it's hard it's hard to hear um Okay, um, so Yeravam um, uh, established two um, temples, one temple in the north of Israel in Dan and another temple in the south of Israel, Beersheba, and he erected two idols in the temple and he encouraged Kal Yisrael, instead of going down to the base of Migdash, crossing over, come to my temples and worship idols and bring sacrifices to theirs. And this was the Yeravam Menavat that admonished Shlomo Melech for not opening up the base of English, when it was totally not Shlomo's fault. And yet, eventually, when he became king himself, he caused a great kilkul, a great problem in, in Kla Yisrael. Um, Rabbi, how did he get down to the level of, of idol worshipping? How, how did he... It's such a low madriga, like, like he, 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 he slipped, he hit his head, he has a concussion. Like, what happened? It wasn't a concussion. Um, I want to tell you something. Hashem himself wondered the same thing, so to speak. And he encouraged him to do tshuva. Yeravam was a great man. And at the end of his life, Chazal say he's one of just a few people who have no portion whatsoever in the world to come. There's no ticking for him. So that's not good. Um, Hashem once, um, uh, so to speak, accosted uh, Yeravam. Hashem himself, and said to him, Chazar do tshuva. And if you do tshuva, ani ata uven yishai. You, uh, me, Hashem, 
Ata, Yuyaravim, and Ben Yishai, meaning David Amelech, Natal Beganadim, we'll call Piach Beganadim, will walk together in Ganadim. That's Hashem telling Yeravim. Hashem doesn't talk. To directly to everybody who does an Avera. It doesn't happen that way. But Hashem held so much of Yeravam that he actually encouraged Yeravam to do Juba directly. So you know what Yeravam's response was? Incredible response. Rabbi, said, how about, how about one your... second. Isaac, one minute. This is Yeravam's response. Yeravam said, Mi Barosh. Who's going to be first? Meaning, who's walking first? David or me? And Hashem said, Ben Yishai Barosh. David is going to be first. And Yeravim said, If so, I'm not interested. Meaning, if I would be first, I would be interested. But I'm not going to be behind David and Melech. Hashem says, you'll be with me in Gan Eden. And you worried about the fact that one person is going to be ahead of you? I want to tell you something else about Yeravim. Just the, the arrogance, the ego is uncomprehensible. It's hard to understand. Some of the Mafars from the commentaries explain that if you listen, if you read carefully the words of the Gemara, Hashem said, "Ani ata uben Yishai, I, you, and Ben Yishai will walk together." Meaning, Hashem said originally, "You will be first. You, I, you, and Ben Yishai." When Yeravim asked Mibarosh, "Who's going to be first? Then Hashem challenged him, and Hashem said, "Ben Yishai is going to be first. So Yeravim said, no, I'm not interested. But had Yeravim said immediately, yes, I will do tshuva, then he would have been first, actually. He was that great. That he was on a level or above David HaMelech. Imagine that. But he, he, he wouldn't do it. And Hashem sent him numerous messages throughout his lifetime to do tshuva through, the, through a prophet, and he, he just didn't do it. So I, I don't understand the mindset of Yeravim. I think it's a blessing, that I can't understand it because if I understood it, Maybe there'll be a part of me that could relate to it, and I can't relate to it at all. So um, I, I, don't, I don't know. I, I don't know what it is. Um, Isaac, you had a question? How about all the other kings that came out of Rava? All the other, uh, all this, all, uh, how do they base? I, I, it's, it's a follow-up to Joe's question. It's the same story. Why, why, what's wrong with these people? Uh, you know, uh, I'm going to tell you a story in a minute about Menasha. You, you'll see. Circumstances were very difficult, and you don't find that Hashem talked directly to any one of those kings. But you do find when the base of Migdash was destroyed, the first base of Migdash, it says in Yirmiya, in the, in, uh, in the Navi Yirmiya, it says because of the sin of Yeravan ben Avad. That sin that Yeravan started was never expunged from Kal Yisrael. So, um, but there are, but you have to recognize that there are different circumstances. And once you brought that up, Isaac, I will, I will tell you the story. So the Gemara tells us in um, in the Sanhedrin of Kuv Beis Amid Beis that the great Amora Rav Ashi, who was the head of yeshiva, was once finishing up a shear, and he was talking about um, the kings of Klal Yisrael. That was his his the topic of his class. He was talking about the different kings of Klal Yisrael, and he said, "Tomorrow, when we resume our shear, we'll discuss." discuss our friend, you know, the other uh, kings of Kalal Yisrael, um, Yeravam, Achav, and Menashe. We'll, we'll talk about our friends, Yeravam and Achav and Menashe. And he said it in a very disparaging way, like our friends, Yeravam, Achav, and, 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 and Menashe. And they were all Tamid Chachamim, and all of them went, uh, worshipped idol, idol worship. Okay? So he called them friends in a derogatory way. 
Anyway, um, that night, Menashe appeared to Rav Ashi in a dream. Okay, appeared to him in a dream. And he said, you call me your friend? That's what you do, you're calling me your friend, as if we're peers, right? He says, uh, or oh, your father's friend, we're peers? I'll, I'll tell you that you don't even know halacha like I know halacha. I'm going to ask you a question. Which part of the bread are you supposed to cut when you make a bracha of a multi-lechem in Haaretz? So Ravashi didn't know. So Menashe said to him, um, I'll, I'll tell you. I'll tell you what it is. And he, he told him that, the, uh, he explained to him what the halacha was, about which part of the bread you're supposed to cut before you, before you, uh, when, you when you say a multi-lechem in Haaretz. So Ravashi said was astounding. Since you're such a Talmud Chacham, how is it possible that you did such a various that you worshipped idols? He says, I want you to know something. That the desire in my day to worship idols was so strong that had you been in my generation, you would have lifted up the cloak, the hem of your garment, and you would have run after idolatry. So don't think that you can understand me um, and, and my generation because you can't possibly understand me and my generation. Now, it doesn't mean that Menashe was not a Russia, although you should know that Menashe himself did tshuva. Yeruvim and Achav did not do tshuva, but it doesn't mean that they weren't Rishayim. Of course they were Rishayim, but we have to recognize that um, life is always not not so simple. Not so simple. You know, I, I, I recall, it brings to mind the story of the Satmar Rebbe. The Satmar Rebbe, Rabbi Yael, Satmar Rebbe once came to visit Eretz Yisrael in the 1950s, probably, or the 60s, came to visit Eretz Yisrael. And he went to the Sat Mashtibal, of course, in Eretz Yisrael, and he, he left. He went back to America. And when he was leaving, his Hasidim were very upset. They didn't want him to leave. They wanted the Rebbe to stay with him, with them. So they said to him, finally, after arguing with him, Rebbe should stay here in Eretz Yisrael. And he wasn't listening. They said, Rebbe, who are we going to get a bracha from? If you go back to America, who's going to give us a bracha? So the Sat Rebbe said, I'll tell you. When you go to shul and you see a yid who's lifting up his shirt, his sleeve, to put on tefillin, and you see on his arm that there are numbers from a concentration camp, and he's putting on his tefillin over those numbers, from him you can get a bracha. It'll be better than my bracha. Meaning to say that the person had such challenges in life, and he left the concentration camp, it's unimaginable, unendurable challenges, and yet he still puts on tefillin, Every single morning, he's diving to Akadosh Baruch Hu. He is a person from whom you could have uh, a bracha. So in the Satmar Rebbe, you know, you can't know uh, a person's circumstances. A lot of times you read stories about people in the Holocaust, and they're not flattering stories. They're, they're, they're stories that are, are, are just not good, not good stories. And we tend to sometimes judge them, but we really can't judge anybody in the Holocaust. Sometimes after the war, you find people that gave up Torah completely and they did things that were even against Kal Yisrael. And there's a certain figure in, uh, in the world today who is a Holocaust survivor, apparently, and um, people uh, speak about him in a very derogatory way. And, you know, it, it, the things that he does perhaps are derogatory, and many of them certainly are. But to talk about him in a derogatory way, I don't think is the right thing to do because he is a Holocaust survivor and you can't really judge a person who went through the trials and tribulations of the war. We can't understand it, so we can't possibly judge it. So uh, we, can't, we can't ever know. Now, I want to uh, um, bring out this point, end up with, with these points, that the, the fact of the matter is that although a person 
is not allowed to judge somebody else when it is, unless he's Magil he gets to his place. But we have to understand this. Um, um, trying to figure out the wording of the Mishnah. Don't judge a person until you reach his place. Now, when you reach his place, you are allowed to judge him. Yeah, is that true? You are allowed to judge a person when you reach his place? I don't know if you're allowed to do that. You know, even though you might be in the same economic circumstances as him, the same part of life and have the same responsibilities, but people's minds and personalities are different. Not so simple that you could judge a person when you reach his place either. But I think the mission... No circumstances, no circumstances could ever be equivalent. Right, can you be exactly alike? With some level of circumstance in one capacity or another, something in their past, something in whatever that makes it unique. And the vantage point in which we see it is a limited capacity of a vantage point that doesn't give us the whole overall approach. Now, we're all guilty of judging, which is something we're working towards, which is why you're talking to us about it. But if you stop and you think about it and try to be as fair as possible, you have to give them the benefit that it's not the same. Very well said. But the Torah does say, one has to rebuke his friend. So how do you understand that? If you rebuke, your, you, rebuke, you rebuke somebody, you're in a sense judging him. So the Torah at once commands you not to judge, but on the other side, the Torah commands you to rebuke. So I want to tell you a wonderful insight that I heard from one of my rebbeim, the great Rebbe Sian Brook, Zechot Tzadik Navracha, was the Rosh Hashiva of Navardik in, uh, in Yerushalayim. And I had the privilege of learning from him and learning with him in, in the 1980s. And he once told me a wonderful insight, which I think is brought down in his Sefer, Hagioni Musser. It says like this, that we'll see in uh, next week's Parsha that Yaakov Avinu goes to Haran to find his wife as his father commanded him and to run away from the, the evil designs of Esau who wanted to murder him. Now he gets to Haran and he finds, um, he makes his way to a well, to the well, and he sees that are, <clears throat> I'm sorry, he sees that there are, that are, there are, um, that are people, all the, um, the, the shepherds are, are around the world, around the well. So he says to them, um, do you know love on the son of Nachar? He says, Yadanu. And uh, he asks them like this, the day is still large, meaning <clears throat> there's still plenty of time left in the afternoon. Lo Ace has safer McNabb. Sorry, it's not time to gather the flock. Why are you all sitting around the well for? Hashkuatzon or Luchuru. Just water the flock, hurry up, and get back to your work. Like why are you just sitting around here by the well? There's plenty of time yet to pastor the flocks. Okay. So they told them we can't because the uh, the, the there's a big stone on, on, on the front of the well. And no one of us can move. We have to wait until all the shepherds get together and they all move it together. Now, Rabbi Stephen Brook asks a very profound question. Yaakov, you're a stranger in Choron. You're coming from Eretz Canaan. You, you haven't been here before. You don't know these people. What, what are you mixing in for? Why are you asking them about the customs of their place? Maybe their customs are different than yours. Maybe they do things differently than you do. So how do you start coming to a place and right away begin rebuking them? What's the understanding of that? So said Rabbi Sian, if you look a Pasuk beforehand, Yaakov says in, in, uh, in Pasuk Dalit, when he meets them, he says, Yaakov, Achai, my brethren, me'ayin atem, from where are you? 
Where are you from? We come from Choron. Says Yaakov Avinu, Achai, my brethren. First, he established a relationship with them, which the Torah doesn't record all the conversation that he had with them, but he showed them that he cares about them. He's like a brother. Your brother can walk over to you and give you rebuke because he's your brother. He knows you love him, and all you mean is for his benefit. So Yaakov Avinu first established, Achai, I am your brother, and I really care about you, so I'm asking you this question, why are you doing what you're doing? Yes, a person could rebuke somebody else, but it's got to be on the, the premises, the basis of Achai, my brother. When, I, when we establish that kind of relationship and I really care about you, then it's okay for me to rebuke you. Otherwise, if you're just going to judge, don't just plain old judge a person until you reach his place. So we learned a lot of very interesting things from this Mishnah. And in Mitzvah next week, we will continue the end of the Mishnah and we will finish off. Thank you very much. Any questions? Thank you Any very much.